All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thanks to uh, our Anna and David, our first two speakers, uh, for two really great talks this morning. Uh, hopefully, you're all caffeinated now. I know I am. Um, and uh, for those of you who have never seen me wear a tie before, I just want to reassure you that I'm wearing this tie completely ironically. So uh, don't take it too seriously. Um, <laughs> our first, uh, first after-the-break uh, speaker is one of our co-leads. Uh, so those of you sticking around um, in participating in the workshop, uh, we'll see uh, me and Tony and Andy everywhere all week long. Um, uh, Tony is from the uh, University of Bristol. He's a glaciologist and um, has a lot of experience modeling uh, ice sheet behavior uh, and has been involved in the Ice to Sea uh, project, which is uh, an effort to coordinate um, sea level related research. Uh, and he's going to talk about ocean ice interactions, a uh, cryospheric perspective. So our morning talks really focused on the ocean side. Our uh, mid-morning talks will focus uh, more from the glaciological perspective. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks very much. <coughs> Thank you. Um, so I'd like to acknowledge my um, co-workers, uh, Steph Cornford, Rupert Gladstone, and Dan Martin, who works at uh, Lawrence Livermore. And many of the results that I show are due to their work. Um, outline of what I'll talk about, some evidence of why we believe the oceans are important in um, generating the changes that we observe in Antarctica. Um, the elephant in the room is the marine ice sheet instability. I'll talk about that briefly. Uh, then I'll talk about specific modeling of Pine Island Glacier, um, more recent work on how one ought to model the ground in line, in particular using an adaptive mesh system, and then the extension of that work to the whole of West Antarctica. Um, You've seen a figure like this already. Uh, key vocabulary, ice stream, and ground in line. It's primarily what I'm going to be talking about today. You know what ice shelves are. Ice streams are zones of fast-flowing ice within the ice sheet. And here's an illustration showing in the lighter, in the white uh, and blues, fast flow. And that could be of the order of uh, uh, kilometer per year, for instance. And these ice streams are embedded in the ice sheet where typical horizontal flows are of the order of, say, 10 meters per year. And much of what I talk about, and much of the observations are related to ice streams rather than this passive, fairly slow-flowing ice sheet. Ice, here's some uh, imagery of ice streams. They're typically uh, 40 to 50 kilometers wide. Uh, here's an aerial shot of one. Uh, they're characterized by very abrupt shear margins. So the there's at least an order of magnitude difference in the horizontal flow here, slow flow, uh, very smooth ice surface, crevassed ice surface here, fast flow. Uh, and this is type of imagery that I'm sure Eric will show later on of um, showing the velocity as measured by, from space, use a technique called interferometry for a particular ice stream in Antarctica. This is Pine Island, which is our poster child, and we'll return to Pine Island quite a bit. Um, now, you're all here because you believe that the oceans and the ice interact, um, so I'm not going to go through a huge amount of evidence as to why we believe that is the case. This is just an uh, image from um, Hamish Pritchard's Nature paper of a couple of years ago, where he shows um, in red ice shelves that are thinning based on <laughs> altimetry. This is a, a LIDAR system, spaceborne LIDAR system. Uh, red ice streams that are thinning, yellow ice, ice shelves rather that aren't doing very much. And he's very suggestively overlaying um, 
observed ocean temperatures and we of course noticed that the, the coincidence of um, warm ocean waters with thinning ice shelves. In this panel we take the signal from the ice shelves here and look at the, how well it corresponds to thinning in the grounded ice. Pine Island, its neighbour Thwaites, Smith Glacier down here gets here. Before I go on to talk about Pine Island, uh, I think it's worth talking about the Larsen ice shelves um, and their collapse. These are ice shelves in the Antarctic Peninsula. Here's the peninsula, South America, up there. Um, and their collapse in 95 for A and uh, 2002 for um, B. Now, although the mechanism may be something to do with um, ocean warning, it's primarily an atmospheric signal. And I'm going to use Larson in particular as a, um, a natural experiment. So we know that on a particular period of time the ice shelf disappeared. And you'll see a couple of papers in a moment that use this event as a, a laboratory, as a test. And there's been a debate, a largely theoretical debate in glaciology that's lasted perhaps 30 years or more, on the degree to which ice shelves talk to the grounded ice uh, that feeds them. So the question is, what happens if you get rid of an ice shelf? And here, an ice shelf has disappeared, so we can answer that question using observational data rather than uh, theoretical arguments. And there's a couple of papers in particular that did this. So here we have the ice shelf again. These colours refer to velocity. Here we have the uh, mountainous spine of the peninsula. And we're going to look at velocities in a number of glaciers that fed into the former ice shelf. And these are the data. Uh, distance from the grounding line. So the grounding line here, this is the ice shelf. We're going up glacier in this direction for all three of these. And we have velocity here, and the different lines refer to different uh, years. So we have 96, 2000 in uh, red and blue, and then 2003 after the um, collapse in, uh, reds, in yellows and greens. So you can see that for Hectoria, Green, Evans, there's a very abrupt jump in velocity, and for Crane also. Now, that's fairly convincing, but of course it could be that whatever caused the um, loss of the ice shelf caused the increase in velocity. So there was something else that caused both things to happen. And fortuitously, uh, there's a natural control experiment as part of this. So it's a fantastic experimental design. Uh, that, and this portion of the ice shelf didn't collapse completely. And flask glacier that drains into it didn't respond. So from this work, we can say pretty convincingly that if you lose an ice shelf, you do affect the flow and the mass loss from grounded ice, which, as I say, was a subject of a very long and sometimes acrimonious debate within uh, glaciology up until this point. <coughs> so we've dealt with Larsen B, and we've taken from that that, yes, you can lose an ice shelf, and that will affect uh, the grounded ice and the amount of mass that's lost from the ice shelf. So this is our test, if you like. Now we're going to try that to the far bigger system. Larson, although it's significant, the loss of the ice shelf and the increase in um, discharge wouldn't affect sea level hugely. What's more important is Pine Island and Thwaites glaciers over here. Uh, Eric will probably talk about 
uh, his earlier work that was the first to identify that things were happening in pi liners by mapping the grounded line, the line that separates ice rested on, resting on bedrock from floating ice shelf ice. And there's a series of images here uh, that map the progressive retreat of this grounding line. So that was the first indication that things were up. Shortly afterwards, uh, another satellite-based technique, um, altimetry, was used to map the change in uh, surface elevation of the ice streams in this sector. And um, we can see that here's Pine Island. So we know the grounding line is retreating. Coincidentally, mass is being lost and the surface elevation of the um, ice stream is deflating. That's also true of parts of uh, Thwaites and the Smith Glacier here. So there's two lines of evidence that are starting to tie up very nicely. Uh, the third line of evidence was provided by Ian Jokin, who, uh, again using satellite inf interferometry, maps the velocity of Pine Island Glacier and could show that it increased at the, uh, through this period. So we have grounded line retreating, mass being lost, and the mass being lost because the glacier has accelerated. All those are, are, are pretty um, well agreed, that series of events. Now we know that in this particular area of Antarctica, air temperatures are sufficiently cold that melt, surface melt is very rare. So whatever's triggering these changes is not the case for Larsen where you had large amounts of surface melt, it's something else. And the obvious candidate was the oceans, or is the oceans, are the oceans. More recent work by, uh, again using um, satellite altimetry by um, the UCL group in, in London, uh, showed that not only is this trend uh, continuing, it's increasing. So here we have the original data set that caused concern. And again, colors refer to thinning rates. So the bluish colors are roughly, uh, let's say, two meters per year thinning. Green, yellows, not much happening. That was in 95. Uh, using a slightly different, uh, sat a different satellite, but similar technique. In 2006, you can see that that thinning has accelerated to the point where we're now down over a 10 meters per year thinning. And here's a time series going from 94 through to 2010 of the elevation change of the, of the ice at this particular location close to the grounded line. And you can see that there is indeed uh, uh, an acceleration of the rate of mass loss from this glacier. And then the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle was delivered by um, Adrian Jenkins uh, reporting the autosub that we've heard about already um, and it's uh, traverse underneath the ice shelf. Now we've heard of the data collected by Autosub on ocean water properties. Autosub also carried a um, bottom reflector so it could map the topography of the bedrock underneath Pine Island ice shelf, which was unknown up until this point. And they discovered a, a ridge here. So what appears to be happening is that the grounding line now here is retreating from a point of stability, and I'll come on to why that's a point of stability shortly, here, and that what we're seeing is retreat from that stable point, perhaps down into the, uh, the main body of this uh, very deep glacial trough. Um, and more recently, uh, a group at Leeds in the UK has mapped the grounding line 
uh, extending Eric's work going now from 1992 all the way through to 2011. And you can see the progressive location of this grounding line and its retreat into, this is the bedrock uh, topography here. So this is a, a peak and we can see that the grounding line is now it's quite, uh, it's retreated right back into this trough here. So, why is this important? Why are people worried about it? Because of the marine ice sheet instability. So I'll just say a few words about what that is. Um, <coughs> here's a series of schematics. We'll run from A, B, C, and D. Here's uh, an ice sheet in equilibrium, where we have accumulation, snowfall, Flowing, uh, accumulating on the surface of the ice, forming ice, flowing out towards the coast. Uh, and we have the grounding line here. Now, for the, this grounding line to be in equilibrium, the flow of ice reaching the grounding line from upstream, i.e. all this accumulation, must exactly, exactly balance uh, the mass lost into the ice shelf or icebergs or whatever. So this is an example of a uh, marine ice sheet in equilibrium. So what we think may be happening is that for some reason or another, the outflow from the ice shelf, uh, from the grounded ice is increasing such that it's more than can be balanced by inflow from uh, flow from accumulation. So with more going out than coming in, this column of ice must thin because it's uh, it's floating or it's balanced on bedrock, it will start to float. So the grounding line will retreat. Now, why could that happen? Well, we've already talked about two processes. Perhaps the ice shelf is becoming weakened by uh, the existence of melt ponds, as in the Larsen, or perhaps the ice shelf is becoming thinned by the presence of warm, relatively warm ocean waters. Thin the ice shelf, make it less able to resist the flow of uh, ice. So we now have a case where this column of ice at the grounding line is thinning, it's going to start to float, so you're going to have some retreat. And that's a self-sustaining process now, so that as you're retreating here, the amount of discharge is going to start, it will continue to increase because you're now in thicker ice, more likely to discharge. So it's going to tend to want to retreat more, and the bedrock here is deeper, so it's going to be harder for it to float. So that's the sequence of events <coughs> leading to the marine instability. And this um, line of argument has been around since 78 at least. <coughs> There's a series of uh, papers in the uh, early 80s highlighting the importance, of, potential importance of this for Antarctica. More recently, um, Christian Schuff has taken this literature and put it on a more satisfactory theoretical basis. So many of those analyses that I just showed you, or that I alluded to, were fairly ad hoc in their nature. And um, the step forward that Christian has provided the community is to remove that ad hocism and put this theory on a more sound theoretical uh, basis. <coughs> and here's a, a key figure from um, Christian's paper. So we have a marine ice shelf, uh, ice sheet rather. Here's bedrock and here's the ice sheet. There's the grounding line in this location. And in this simple 1D analysis that we're just going to look at steady states, we have 
in this graph, flow at the grounding line uh, in units of flux. And here we have distance uh, from the ice divide towards the ocean. And there's two lines here. First, the, the blue line. In this simple analysis, this is going to be the outflow, the mass that has to leave the ice sheet. And Christian's assuming constant accumulation, so this is just a linear function of distance. As, you, as the ice sheet gets bigger, there's more surface area for snow to accumulate, therefore there's more flux to get rid of. In Christian's analysis and his breakthrough was that he could come up with an, an analytical expression that related the flux that's discharged across the grounding line as a function of um, the thickness at the grounding line. Now we know the thickness at the grounding line because we know by definition that the grounding line is just balancing buoyancy. So if we know the bedrock, we know what the thickness ought to be. So you can construct this sort of curve knowing what the bedrock topography is. And there's a number of points of stability here where the two balance. So at this point, the two fluxes balance and we're in equilibrium. Here, here, here. If we take this point here and we increase the uh, outflow for some reason, then there's more leaving the ice than being balanced by um, flow from the interior. So that's a stable point. That's going to go back to the equilibrium. So you can perturb it, and it will return to the steady state. So it's a stable position. And you can contrast this, that to this point here, where if you increase the flux leaving the ice sheet, then you can go through this path here, and you get an irre irreversible retreat back to the next steady state. Now, <coughs> this is a theoretical analysis. And while it's fantastic in that it sets the ground for, for us, it can't be used in predictive modeling of Antarctica for two reasons. Firstly, it just deals with steady states. It didn't, doesn't tell us how quickly those steady states will emerge. And secondly, it just deals with a one-dimensional ice sheet. So it doesn't include things like buttressing from ice shelves. That's why you need numerical modeling. I thought I'd just throw this one in because I was just struck by the interdisciplinarity of this. So um, we come up with the idea that West Antarctica may be potentially unstable. Uh, and this, I was just struck how, how interesting this work was. So the question then is, how can we gather data to test that idea? Uh, this uh, particular group of workers have used the genomics of bryozoans, which are sedentary organisms uh, at the base of the, um, on the sea floor and look at, looked at the genomics of various communities around Antarctica and found that actually the Ross Sea and Weddell Sea communities uh, are very closely aligned in their genomics, suggesting that they may, must have been talking to one another uh, very recently, perhaps during the last interglacial 120,000 years ago. I'll just put that in as a side because it, I'm struck by how interesting it is to use different tools rather than the, the, the usual geophysical tools that we employ. Um, so coming to numerical modeling of ice shelves and ice sheets and grounding lines indeed. On the face of it, this is what you ought to do. However, there's a body of work over the last five years or so that's suggested that if you do this, you have to do it with great deal of caution. And that's because the results turn out to be highly dependent on the grid spacing that you employ in the model. 
all numerical models have some sort of representation of space, a grid spacing. And in this paper by Gail Duron, he showed that the grounded line uh, position depends quite sensitively on the grid spacing. So he only gets convergence around about 50 meters uh, grid spacing. Now, we're proposing to use this sort of model for all of Antarctica. So clearly, 50 meters resolution is an impractical proposition. Indeed, 200 meters is an impractical proposition. Most models would typically use something like five kilometer grid resolution. So this is a severe challenge to the type of numerical models used to predict what's going to happen. <coughs> so now I'm going to turn to uh, work that we've done on Pine Island Gathsia and predicting its future and its past. Um, we were beaten to this by uh, Ian Jokin, who um, in 2010 published some finite element, element modeling of um, the future of Pine Island Glacier. And he found that actually wholesale retreat in the marine instability type mode doesn't occur. And he reaches a point of stability, the grounding line retreats, but only 30 or 40 kilometers. So our work was um, set up to test that idea. And what we developed was a, a toy model, a flow line model <coughs> of the Pinites, Pinite, Pine Island system um, that included the box model of melt rate calculation. So it had the three equation model in it, and it had conservation of temperature, salinity, and the cavity, but in a fairly um, cartoon fashion. And the idea is to force that model with um, a projection of ocean temperatures to see what happens. The advantage of having a small flow line model that's easy to use is that you can run it many, many times. So we um, ran 5,000 different combinations of, of these parameters, which relate to ice flow and geometry, all the unknowns that we have on the ice sheet side of the equation. And the, uh, the results are shown here. So it's quite a complicated figure. Here's ground in line position. So currently it's there. Uh, and then it may retreat in the future. This is time going from the uh, rough, roughly the present day there up for two centuries. And these individual tracks just show the, the, for a particular model experiment the ground in line location. Now you'll see that some are in gray and some are in red and blue. What we could do was use a, a comparison to observational data to test which of these 5,000 experiments satisfied the criteria that they agree reasonably well with observations. So that's why the bulk of these gray ones are, are ignored, because they don't fit, uh, pass that particular test. But what we do get is two sets of um, types of experiment. One in which we get a grounded line stabilizing in roughly the position that Ian found. But also we got a large group that continues retreat up the whole of the um, the trough such that there was no ice left after uh, by 2200. So in, David was talking about parameter uncertainty, essentially. Uh, I think what it's clear that a lot of these parameters matter to ground in line retreat. A lot of um, the parameters associated with ice flow and indeed what we know about the ocean circulation underneath the ice shelf. And it seems that we need, to, whatever we do, we need to do modeling in this sort of framework so that we're assessing the uncertainty of those parameters that um, 
and making some sort of probabilistic um, prediction rather than just trusting one particular model. We note that um, our flow line model is, the results are heavily grid dependent, so we can run the model at 10 kilometers, uh, two and a half kilometer resolution, and nothing happens. It's not until we go down to sub-kilometer resolution that we get some sort of convergence. So around about 75 meters, 300 meters, grid resolutions required to capture this process. Okay. Now, um, taking that understanding and applying it to a full-scale model of Antarctica is a challenge because we've, we're now fairly convinced that we need high resolution near the grounding line, at least sub-kilometer, perhaps better than that. So what our effort has been in the last five years or so is to find a method of delivering that. It's clearly impractical to model the whole of Antarctica at that sort of resolution, so we require some sort of adaptive mesh software. Um, we made the decision that it's easier to write an ice sheet model than it is to write an adaptive mesh model. So we scrapped the ice sheet model and took on board this framework that's been de de developed over the last 20 years by the Livermore uh, National Laboratory, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, originally developed for nuclear, nuclear explosions and the like, but does all the adaptive mesh business for us. So we've, got, we've built an ice sheet model within that framework. <coughs> and in the trial applications, again, it, it was indeed the case that the predictive migration of the grounding line heavily dependent on the grid spacing that you use. So here's a number, um, you can, it's an illustration of how the adaptive meshing works. We have a criteria that essentially says if you're near the grounding line, you need a fine mesh. And you can see that these meshes, meshes sit within one another. <coughs> Trombo takes care of all of that. And um, what we're showing is the grounding line position for various mesh sizes. So the, court, the base mesh is five kilometers. And if we apply a, a substantial perturbation to melt rates, the grounding line is anchored at this point and doesn't move. It's only when we start using different meshes that we get the grounding line to move. Now, I'm not as sophisticated with movies as David was, so I can't embed them, um, but I can show them to you. So this is that model experiment. This is the uniform mesh at five kilometers. <coughs> We're applying a base, uh, an increase in melt rates to the ice shelf, and nothing much is happening. So if we didn't know about this issue about grid resolution, we'd say Pine Island is stable, we don't have to worry. This is an example with four le levels of mesh refinement, <coughs> exactly the same forcing as I've just shown you. Uh, so we're down in the finest mesh to below a kilometer, probably about 500 meters or so. So you can see the response to exactly the same forcing is very, very different and it's actually more akin to what um, that flow line um, predicted of large-scale deglaciation. Uh, that's years down there. So, Tony, how do you decide Well, there is a choice and the algorithm is ju just looks to see whether, whether the ice is floating or how close it is to floating. Okay, I've just got... I probably won't manage the, all of this, so I'm going to skip to the end, to the punchline. So one can apply this sort of technology to um, all of Antarctica. 
And this was done within the framework of the um, European Union Ice to Sea project, where we collaborated with a group from um, Utrecht to provide projections of snowfall increase, but more importantly with the Alfred Wegener Institute, who used their regional model of the Southern Ocean to look at what may happen um, to melt rates and ocean temperature warming in the future. And uh, you'll probably be aware of a paper by um, Hartmut Helmer, I think it was in Nature a couple of years ago, and his key result was that at some point density structure of the ocean out here is such that warm water can circulate under the, the Weddell. So we used that data set plus um, other data for Pine Island on the warming. I think that model predicted ocean temperatures in the area around Pine Island to increase by two or three degrees or something like that, which is essentially circumpolar deep water sitting in Pine Island all the time. Now you can just about make out the ground in line current one in black. And then what I've shown, or what we've shown, are grounded lines at 2100, end of the century. And there's a red one, and there's a, a pink one. Those are just different combinations of ocean forcing. So you can see that there is grounded line retreat, very extensive retreat around um, this ice shelf, the, uh, the Ronnie Filchner, S a little bit of retreat in the Ross, and um, in this particular experiment, um, Pine Island goes, but Thwaites remains pretty much um, stable, and Smith also um, retreats. Now, because the only thing that happens is Pine Island is lost, and this becomes an ice shelf, the actual contribution to sea level is not great, measured in tens of centimetres or so. And these experiments predict that Thwaites won't do much, and I'll explain why that is probably in questions. Um, but it's important to stress that it's a matter of time scale here. This is just for the first 100 years or so. And I'll show you another movie to whet your appetites on the longer-term evolution of the system, which is here. So this is Pine Island. This is Thwaites. This is Smith and we're applying an ocean warming based on the, the pheasant work from Arvey. So we can see that Pine Island's grounding line does indeed retreat. Here's time here, so we're up to 2,250 or so. And this experiment lasts for about 400 years. So you can see on the longer time scales, Thwaites starts to retreat. And it's mecha the mechanism by which it retreats is very interesting. So if you can next time it comes around, concentrate on this area. So what appears to happen in the model is that Pine Island and Thwaites talk to each other. And it's only, so we can see there's a fast flow element here, a little ice stream, and that grounding line starts to retreat. At some point it interacts with Thwaites here and the flow that was going over the grounding line of Thwaites starts heading off down there. Now we know from the Schiff analysis that if the flow across the grounding line from the ice sheet is reduced in any way, then the grounding lines like to retreat. And that seems to be what triggers Thwaites retreat rather than a direct response to whatever's happening in its ice shelf. Okay. Yep, that's it. <laughs>